Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right, well, uh, we're in John 8, like Josh said, and I don't know if you noticed this or not when it popped up last week. I don't even know if it'll pop up again when... uh, when uh, Aiden brings up uh, John 7.53, let's give it a whirl there, Aiden. Uh, yeah, no, it didn't, so that's funny. But anyways, if you were here last week, you, know, you would have noticed towards the end of Josh's message that it, this, when he uh, got to this part of, the, of John chapter 7, which is the final uh, verses of John 7, the very last verse, John 53, there's a little message that popped up, and if you look in your, uh, your, your, your real Bible, your actual uh, printed uh, copy of God's Word, there, there, there probably is a note there. How many of you have a note at, the, at that point? You see that note? Okay, yeah. And, and the note says, uh, at least in the ESV translation, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, chapter 7, verse 53, which is the last verse in chapter 7, and up until uh, in, and including verse 11 of chapter 8. So there is a clear consensus. There it is. Thank you, Eden. There is a clear consensus among conservative biblical scholars that John chapter 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11, that's 12 verses if you do the math. Um, There is a clear consensus among conservative scholars that that section is a later insertion made by an editor and is not part of John's original writing. Now, there are a lot of reasons to trust the scholars on this. Uh, The vocabulary in these 12 verses is different uh, from the rest of uh, the book of John. For example, this is the only place in the book of John where the word scribe is used, which would be odd. Uh, But not only that, but there are 13 other words in these 12 verses that do not appear anywhere else in the gospel according to John. So these are strong indications that uh, biblical scholars uh, look at. And uh, there are um, other reasons uh, as well. If if you have a lot of interest in this area and you'd like to send me an email, I mean, there's all kinds of, of research available that lay these things out and explain them for what they are, but we have to be careful not to get defensive at this point here, uh, because the same principles, listen, the same principles used to establish the historical authenticity of the New Testament text in general are those same principles uh, that are used to identify this as not part of John's original writing. So, for example, the principles that, that, and, um, and textual uh, pr- um, factors that give evidence that John is, in fact, the, the writer of the gospel according to John. So the same rules and principles of textual criticism. Uh, and I'm not talking about higher criticism. If, if you know anything about textual criticism or higher criticism, they're very, very different. Higher criticism, uh, so-called, begins with a presupposition uh, that is anti-God and anti-supernatural. Textual criticism is something totally different. It's, it's a principles and rules used by scholars and historians to establish 
what the original uh, authentic text uh, included and what it said. Um, so again, email me if you're, if you're interested. But I thought Josh did a really good job of explaining these things when he covered uh, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you remember that message a few weeks ago? I think it was chapter five, so that'd be like three weeks ago. Uh, and maybe you wanna go back and have a look at that again, because I thought he did a really good job uh, in that example. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the event that we commonly refer to that's included in this passage of scripture that we commonly refer to as the woman taken in adultery, uh, it doesn't mean that that event didn't happen because this, that passage uh, does appear to reflect an early uh, oral tradition uh, and probably why it's included in not only in the ESV but in other reputable translations, albeit with a, a, a note or a footnote or whatever explaining what we've just been uh, what I've just been sharing with you. Let me just share a quote from John Piper. I think that John Piper uh, speaks well to this. He says, in regard to these 12 verses, he says, it is true on the basis of other parts of scripture, and so let this story not be the basis of our authority, but an echo and a pointer to our authority, namely the scriptures that teach what this passage says, that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. One of the indicators that this these 12 verses are not part of um, John's original writing is that it breaks the flow of the narrative. That's only one of the uh, indicators. But um, for that reason, I would like to jump in this morning at verse 12. I have spoken on the, those 12 verses, um, the, the first 11 verses in John 8, as recently as October of 2021. So it's not that I don't believe that, that the events happen, but there's a lot of material in John 8. There's 47 verses after the account of the woman taken in adultery. And so that's where we're gonna be focusing our time this morning. Uh, and I wanna jump in with verse eight where we read these words, John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John's, uh, Josh has been uh, mentioning the seven great sign miracles, the seven feasts of the Jews, and the seven great I am statements we find in John. And this, of course, is one of those great I am statements. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this time we have together this morning and for this great opportunity we have just to be together. And thank you most of all, Lord, for your presence here with us. And that includes, Lord, being able to open your word and to um, examine what you would have for us in these passages today. Lord, help us to approach your word uh, the way we need to approach you, uh, Lord, in reverence and awe and, and, uh, and, and faith. God, uh, today, uh, as we thank you for the truth of your word, we pray that you would work in our hearts and lives and in our minds this day to create light uh, in us, 
shine the light of your word into our hearts today, we pray, as we look to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're calling the series we're doing Belong, Believe, Become, uh, because these are three great themes that rise out of the gospel according to John. We spent three weeks talking about uh, what it means to belong and uh, some of what it means to belong. It's a big subject. There's a lot, a lot to work with here. But now we're in our third week of what it means to believe because believing is a very important thing. Um, Believing is, is important. It sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? Um, so before we get too much into the rest of the text, I, I, I want to just note a few things about the word believe, if I could. How many times do you think the word believe might occur in the gospel according to John? What do you think? Well, you don't know. Of course you don't know. I didn't know either until I looked it up. But I'll tell you. 98 times. That's a lot. 98 times is a lot. Uh, believing is a very important thing. Now, of course, John wrote in Greek. Most of you probably know that. Uh, the English word faith uh, that is used to translate some of those uses, um, uh, his uses uh, in, uh, in, in John, uh, we, we don't have uh, verb forms for faith. Faith is a noun, and, and, and if we want to have a verb form for a noun, the noun faith, then we have to uh, leave the, the root word faith and go to a different word like believe. Uh, but in Greek, that's not the case. So in Greek, uh, John, as well as the rest of the New Testament, uh, uses three uh, words that are actually three different forms of the same word for uh, believe, believing, and faith. So just without turning this into some kind of a Greek lesson or anything like that, uh, just let me mention to you so that you will appreciate this, uh, that he, John uses a word, pistiowo, uh, which is a verb, typically translated as believe. And he uses a word, pistis, that is a noun that is typically translated faith. And he uses a word, uh, pistos, which is an adjective that is translated believing. Uh, it's also translated uh, faithful and can, either me can mean either trustworthy or trustful, depending on how it's used. It can mean either faithful or easily persuaded. So you have this noun and this, ver uh, this verb, uh, because it's the verb form that John uses most. You have this verb and you have this noun and you have this adjective. And they all, in Greek, they're all uh, very closely associated uh, words with the same root. But you can't translate them into English that way because we don't have a verb for, uh, uh, for faith. And so um, those other words are used. So it's just totally legitimate to do what the translators have done uh, when they use, uh, translate the word faith. Um, 
from, uh, from the word uh, pistis. Uh, okay, that's, uh, that's uh, probably enough of that. Um, John, John likes the, the verb form. He likes the verb form, the one that we don't have a, a, a form of when we use the word faith, which is a noun. How many of you like grammar? Yeah, that's what I thought, about eight of you. Um, <laughs> I hated grammar when I was in school, but boy, you know, when I started studying scripture, I started to realize how important some of these things can be. But um, how many of you remember this? Verbs are... Action words, thank you very much, Leah. Verbs are action verbs, words, and John uses the verb form a lot. And uh, it's believe. Believe. And we tend to think of faith as more of a passive kind of thing. But it would, it would appear that John, or may I say Jesus, through John, wants us to think of faith more as an active thing than a passive thing. So here we go, John chapter 8, verses 13 through 20. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Jesus has just said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees said to him, verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not, not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. That's a very important statement. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come, which is a recurring phrase in the book of John. Um, now, the fact that the uh, Pharisees immediately started to, uh, to debate with Jesus uh, about uh, how we uh, establish uh, the authority for truth, uh, when he said, I am the light of the world, when he made this amazing statement, he who walks and uh, follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The fact that they launched into this debate about discerning the truth shouldn't surprise us, because throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel was giving inst given instructions as to how to establish truth based on the testimony of not just one person, but the testimony of a corroborated witness. And uh, so this is not truth in the empirical sense. Sometimes when we think about truth, our minds naturally go to the world of science. Science deals with the empirical. It's all about what you can taste, touch, see, feel, or smell. 
those are our senses, of course, and that's how we interact with the, the, uh, with, with the world, the natural, material, physical world. But Jesus isn't talking about that kind of truth here. Um, he's talking more about truth in the experiential sense, or you could say the historical sense, if you will. It's the kind of truth that we think about when we ask somebody in all utter seriousness and, and uh, to uh, uh, swear that they are telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That kind of truth. Um, uh, we're talking about some key words here, so it might be helpful for you to know that the word truth or true occur 49 times in John's gospel. And another prominent word is the word know. In English, K-N-O-W, not N-O. Grammar break. N-O means no. K-N-O-W means oh, no. They're not the same. Just for future note, okay? Um, and they mean something very, very different, so you, you want to take note of that. But the word that's translated K-N-O-W occurs 131 times in the Gospel according to John. That has to be significant, and it is, and it bears direct, uh, has direct bearing as well on what, we, what we're talking about today, which is the call to believe. And you might say, well, how do I know, K-N-O-W, what to believe or who to believe? While we're talking about words, the word light occurs 22 times in the gospel according to John. It's very significant in John chapter 1, if you remember what it says there. We're actually going to look at that in a moment. But here's an interesting thing. The word that's translated light occurs uh, 22 times in the gospel according to John, but it does not occur at all after chapter 12, verse 46, which is the spot in John's gospel that indicates the end of Jesus' public ministry. So with that in mind, take a look with me now at John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses and then uh, a quick look at verse 19. So John chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Word is the Creator God. Verse 4, in him was life. Another very interesting word in John. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness not, has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Lots of important words. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then down in verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Um, so we see here uh, lots of things, lots of things. But one of the things we see here is that Jesus did have another human witness. Even apart from the witness of his father, he had John. John the, the Baptist is presented in all four gospel accounts as the key witness of Jesus. Um, he bore testimony to, to Jesus and to the identity of Jesus. You remember, remember that? You remember some of those passages? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, so is that legitimate? Is testimony a legitimate way of establishing truth? Well, it certainly is in Scripture. <laughs> and in court. Yeah. We need to be careful in our zeal for the truth as something that is objective. We need to be careful that we don't become modern age rationalists. Modern age rationalists that leave no room for experience as a legitimate and important way of knowing the truth. Christians are not anti-science, or at least we shouldn't be anti-science, because science can reveal a lot of truth about a lot of things. The material world, or the natural world, if you will, or the empirical world, uh, that we can taste, smell, touch, see, and feel, includes a lot of things. It really does. Um, but don't, don't fall for what I think could be, is called scientism. And don't succumb to what some people have succumbed to, which is this notion that science can explain everything. And if science can't explain it, it's not real. Don't fall into that trap because there are things that science cannot explain and that we cannot know scientifically. Are they true? Do they exist? Do you exist? Science can't explain life. They can talk, <laughs> scientists can talk about the pieces of your body, your brain, but science can't explain your consciousness. Science can't explain beauty. They have absolutely no explanation whatsoever for beauty. But as far as that goes, science can't explain love, joy, or peace either. Those things do not exist within a scientific framework. Because they are not part of the material world. They're not part of the natural world or the empirical world. They're spiritual. You probably know this, but science can't explain morality either. There is no right or wrong in a scientific framework. 
And Christians have been trying to make this point for the last couple of hundred years, I think, that there is no morality without faith in God, without belief in a a creator. There is no way of telling what is right or wrong. There is no reality. There is no sin. Sin does not exist within a scientific framework. There is no right or wrong. There's only what? Survival of the fittest. And it's very strange that so many people in our world today want to shout the truth of the survival of the fittest, but nobody wants to live according to that dogma. Not a single person on the planet. Because sin is real. Science can't explain you. Listen to me for a second. When you die someday, and someday you will, unless the Lord returns before you do, when you die someday, every single part of you is going to return to the elements of this creative world. Every single part of you except your spirit. Is that true? You can stake your life on it. When I was 21 years old, Jesus Christ changed my life forever. Is that true? Can I, can I get a witness? Anybody in this room experience a change in your life that science can't explain? Can you bear witness? Jesus is talking here about the truth. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. It's ominous, isn't it? Where I I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he, he said, He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus is talking about two different things here, right? Of this world. Yeah, science can deal with that. From above? (laughs) I told you that you would die in your sins. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, to, to him, who are, who are you? Good question. If only they were ready to listen to the answer. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you. Another good question, who am I? I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have what I've heard from him. And they did not understand that he had, uh, was speaking to them about, about the Father. So Jesus said to them, you, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
then you will know that I am he. That's a, uh, that reference, is, he makes that reference to Nicodemus too. If you remember back in chapter three, when he's talking, just before he says, uh, for God so loved the world, that whoever so ever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just before he said that, he talks about the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, Jesus says here, then you will know that, that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority. There's another important word as it relates to truth, right? Authority. But speak just as the Father taught me and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for all I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, this is verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So pause for a second, uh, Josh, breathe. Take a breath. Many believed in him. Everyone exercises faith. Everyone believes in something. But what do you believe in? Faith in itself, faith in and of itself, only becomes a good thing when the object of our faith is true and trustworthy. That might be the first thing we need to understand about this important subject of believing is that believing only becomes a good thing when the object of our faith is true and trustworthy. But another thing here is is that it says they didn't just believe him, they believed in him. Did you notice that? It doesn't say, and many, uh, as he was saying these things, many believed what he was saying. It doesn't say, as he was saying these things, many believed him. It says many believed in him. In fact, that is typical throughout this whole gospel account. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Sometimes we get the idea and notion that this belief thing is an intellectual thing. A a truth claim or an idea that we give mental assent to. But the call to believe in Scripture has the idea of believing in, or if you will, believing into. Think about the I am statements for a minute. Think about this statement, I am the bread of life. What does Jesus want us to take from that? He certainly isn't calling us to passivity. He's he's saying you need to eat the bread. Take it in to yourself. Believing in or believing into. There have been times in the church when we've made the mistake of thinking that truth is merely subjective. Josh referenced this, I think, last week when he was talking about the culture, how our culture is into this whole, you know, this is how I feel, so this must be true uh, thing, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a dangerous thing. 
But there's also a danger in denying the experiential aspects of truth by thinking that truth is objective only, that it's academic, it's rational. Because the uh, scriptures call us to a faith that is both objective and subjective, both cognitive and experiential. Faith is reasonable, but faith transcends reason. In other words, faith is reasonable, but faith is more than reasonable. I mentioned that word know that occurs 131 times, 131 times in the gospel according to John. But that word uh, and how it's used is very instructive because it's not used just of a, an academic, intellectual kind of knowing, is it? You know this. You know this. And not just Jesus. You go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter uh, Three, four, sorry, Genesis chapter four, the first few verses of Genesis chapter four, it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Or go to the Christmas story in Matthew chapter uh, one, where it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So knowing in scripture isn't just knowing about. Don't make that mistake. Oh yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Do you? Or you, do you just believe about Jesus? Because there's a big and important difference between those two things. In scripture, it says they believed in him. It's not just knowing about, it's way more personal than that. Way more personal than that. John chapter 8, verse 31 and following. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We love this part here. This is one of our favorite sections. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Wow. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Oh, really? They seem to know all about Abraham, but they seem to have forgotten 400 years of history. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But they say, we're Abraham's offspring and we've never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will, be, uh, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, which would be different than being children of Abraham in a spiritual sense. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Mark that. My words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Uh, sometimes believing in Jesus is all about believing who he is 
Sometimes it seems to focus on believing what he says. I think we can all appreciate the interconnectedness and the interdependency of those two things. Uh, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity just as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see, sorry, but because by it I see everything else. Later on in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth with a capital T that embodies all truth. He says, if you abide in my word, verses 31 and verse 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now let me get a little technical with you again. Nothing too heavy, but I want to read a little bit from uh, the... uh, the B-Dagging uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Okay? Big name. B-Dag stands for Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. Those are the four persons that uh, put it together. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says this of the verb believe. It says that the verb believe, pistiwo, has two meanings. Number one, it means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Number two, it means to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence. To entrust oneself. Jesus is coming into the world, and he's coming into a situation, you know, hopefully, what the situation is. It's not dissimilar to the situation when God called Moses to go into Egypt to lead the people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, because our world is in bondage, and Jesus is coming into the world, and he's calling us to believe in him. How many of you know this, that We cannot save ourselves from the situation that we find ourselves in. That we have to look outside for that salvation and that that light and that redemption and that rescue. You can't be the source of your own life. You can't give yourself life You couldn't give yourself life in the first place when your parents brought you home as a bundle of joy. And you can't give yourself new life either. And neither can I. We need Jesus. And these men that Jesus we're talking to here today, they desperately needed Jesus, but they didn't know it. Because they didn't recognize it, and they didn't recognize him. How important is it to believe in Jesus? Verse 39 and following, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Think about this with me. What's really true here? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. I don't know if you've read this passage before, but that's a pretty significant shot suggesting that Jesus was born, uh, that Mary was unfaithful to uh, Joseph, right? We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm, I'm here. Here I am. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not believe what I say? Is it because you cannot? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. This is getting intense here, isn't it? You are of your father, the devil, and your, your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Because that's basically what they were saying. I think they were saying that Jesus was born in sin. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47 says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. One of the, last, one of the things that Josh said uh, last, I think it was last week, he said something. He said a lot of things that were profoundly true, but one of the things that he said that was really, uh, uh, I don't know, stood out to me. He was talking about John 7, 7, where it says the world hates Jesus. And he asked the question, why does the world hate Jesus? And the question is answered there in the text. They hated Jesus because, and this is a very, this is, this is a paraphrase because I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said something like, some of the hardest truth for us to believe is the truth about ourselves and our sin. Some of the hardest truth for us to believe is the truth about ourselves and about our sin. See, this is all part of this because believing in Jesus mean, means not just understanding the truth about Jesus. It involves understanding the truth about ourselves and how much we need Jesus. Because if you don't think you need a savior, you won't give Jesus a second look. If you're not honest with yourself about the sin of your own heart and your own life, who needs Jesus? But if you're willing to be truly honest with your own self in your own heart about your own need, then you'll not only give Jesus a second look, but you'll give him a real look. And you'll start seeing the things in him that you wouldn't see otherwise. Let's finish reading the text because we're just about out of time and uh, I just want to try to finish up some thoughts here. Let's finish reading the rest of the chapter. Verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And Jesus said to him, uh, the Jews, sorry, the Jews said to him, now we know uh, that you have a demon. I think they, they, they feel that they're being very, very logical and reasonable here, aren't they? Very reasonable. You know, I'm sure they, they think they pretty much are winning this argument. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than father, our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be, which is in the vernacular, who do you think you are? Again, very important question. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And then he, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, sir, well, sir, well, sir. Now there's, who needs to hear any more? This guy is right off his rocker. You are not yet 50 years old, they said. And have you seen Abraham? Really? And Jesus said to them, look at these words. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the text concludes, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple because it wasn't his time yet. There's so much here in this whole passage and we've made note of a few things, but I just want to make one more thing uh, a focus of our attention this morning and it's really a mind-blowing thing. If you noted back in verse 24, Jesus said, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 28, he said, when the son of man has been lifted up, you will know that I am he. These statements are not part of the seven great I am statements. Because all of the seven great I am statements have a a metaphor attached to them. I am the um, bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and so on. They all have powerful metaphor attached to them because they are intended along with the feasts and the miracles to reveal who Jesus is. But these statements here don't have a metaphor attached to them. So they're not, they're not part of the seven statements, but they stand out for a different reason and they are very amazing because really it's not another one of those things that you need to understand just a little bit of language for because in English, um, we, when we talk, uh, and the same thing is true normally for other languages as well, but when we make statements, we, uh, we need a predicate. And I, you might not even know, remember what a predicate is, but let me just explain it to you this way. When Jesus made these statements, 
the word he is not in the Greek. So Jesus technically did not say, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. What he actually said was, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. It's called an unpredicated phrase. It doesn't work in English. And so the translators have added the word he, not just here, uh, in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He is not there. It's just, then you will know that I am. In fact, this happens throughout the book of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke. It it's, occurs all the time. And you get people that say, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's a good moral teacher and, uh, or I believe he was... Uh, you know, maybe I believe he was a, the angel Michael or something. I don't know. But I, don't, I just can't believe that he is God. Because when did Jesus ever claim to be God? I mean, really, he just, he just did all these, these, these kind of talking around it, but he never really came out and said he was God. This is a direct declaration of, God, of Jesus claiming to be God. It's unequivocal. There's no doubt about it. And, and uh, uh, you may not be familiar with Uh, When we get to verse 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if all he wanted to convey was that he was around before Abraham, maybe some angelic being or something like that, then he could have said simply and would have said simply, before Abraham, I was. Or before Abraham was, I was. But he didn't say that. And his word choice is interesting and it's very significant. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm out of time. But, but, but have you ever read the book of Exodus? Have you ever, uh, do you remember the story of Moses? Bear with me just, just a moment here. But you remember when Moses was in the desert, the back, desert, back uh, Sinai desert, and, and, and God appears to him in the burning bush, right? Some of you know, some of you know this. But God appears to him in the burning bush and God speaks to him there. And God says, take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God says, I want you to lead my people out of the slavery in Egypt because I've heard their, their suffering and I've seen their bondage and I've come down to deliver them. I want you to lead those people out. And, Ab- and, and Moses said, did I say Abraham before? Moses, I'm talking about Moses, Exodus chapter three. And Moses said to God, I can't do that. And we have a conversation. But then he says to God, he says, "Um, well, if I go to Egypt and talk to the people there and tell them that, uh, you know, that I've been sent to deliver them out, who who am I supposed to, to say send me? What's your name? And God says, I am that I am, you tell those people that I am sent you. Moses delivered, led the, uh, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and led them into the land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus is here unequivocally claiming um, that he is almighty God. Now, you would say, well, is that 
Is that really what he was saying? Well, how did the people hear it? How did the people that he was talking to hear it? What did they do? What was their response? They, they were going to kill him. For blasphemy. Yeah, that's right. Um, let me say in closing to you that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are called is that we are called to believe that the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come. God in the flesh, John says in John chapter 1, verse 14. And he has showed himself to be who he declared himself to be. And he is who he revealed himself to be. And because of that, he can do what he said he would do, which is provide salvation for the world, to provide salvation for you and me. Believing in Jesus is not academic, it's not abstract, it's totally personal. Jesus calls us to believe in him. Not some nebulous faith, not some you've got this girl kind of faith. Not some belief in a God far away and far removed from our personal experience, but a God who has come and a God who has suffered and died in our place for our sins, a God who calls us to believe, a God who calls us into a personal relationship where we can come to know the very God of heaven and earth. I'm going to ask uh, Josh to come and I'm going to ask Vicki Linkletter to come. Josh is going to help us with the end of the service and Vicki's going to lead us in a, um, a prayer of meditation at this time. Thank you. Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we lift up your name and we worship you. You are the light of the world. With you in our lives, we don't have to live in darkness. You dispel the shadows. You lead us into truth. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can trust your word. All that you say is good and right and true. We have full confidence in who you are and what you say. Jesus, you are the door to eternal life. Without you, we will die in our sins and be separated from God forever. Thank you that you loved us enough to die in our place so we could be in your family forever. We humble ourselves before you and confess our faults and our sin to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We don't just believe what you say. We believe in who you are, the Holy One of God, sent to save us. Help us entrust our very selves to you for the shaping of our entire lives. Thank you that you have set us free, free from the penalty of sin, free from the guilt of sin, free from the power of sin. 
You set us free from the lies of this world. The lie that says we are enough. The lie that says we don't need you. The lie that says all roads lead to heaven. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord Jesus, you are the great I am. In you and you alone, we find true freedom, light, and life. We worship and love you forever. And all God's people said, 